Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? Well, I think it's time I finally admitted the truth to you. You won't tell my family this, will you? I can I can trust you lot, can't I? Well, it is fair to say that my children when they come across me eating my Easter egg, keep commenting on how they can't believe I'm still eating my Easter egg. And I say to them, well, it's important to make these things laugh. You don't want to scoff it all down, just make it last. What they don't know, (laughs) this is terrible. I can't believe I'm telling you this. What they don't know is that, yes, I ordered an Easter egg for each of us, but then when everyone was out of the house, I also ordered extra easter eggs for me using a separate supermarket so it wasn't the same delivery person of exactly the same easter egg as the one i they knew i'd ordered so when it arrived i took all the i unpacked the easter eggs i put all the cardboard in the recycling and hid the easter eggs in a bag in my wardrobe so so this is terrible isn't it so they think I'm still eating the one Easter egg and I'm not. I'm on number six, possibly number seven. It's terrible. And I can't, I can't keep saying to them, it's important to make it last because how long can you make an Easter egg last? I don't, I don't know. And if they find out, I'm going to get roasted so badly. So, yes. That's that's the situation we're dealing with today. But enough about me. Let's talk about what books we've got on. Oh, dear. What, what lies we tell, what stories we spin. It will come back to bite me, I know. Anyway, we are talking about today. Prepare yourself for this first book. Rivets, Trivets and Galvanised Buckets by Tom Fort. Uh, then The Maiden by Kate Foster. A YA book called Happy Head by Josh Silver. Then Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom, And finally, the audiobook version of The Stranger You Know by Jane Casey. I enjoyed all the books this week. There are no gripes whatsoever, but there are stories to tell you. So let's go on straight away to Rivets, Trivets and Galvanised Buckets. Sorry, let me put the pile of books down so that they're not sliding. Here we go. Um, 
So Rivets, Trivets and Galvanised Buckets is by Tom Fort. And the title, the sort of subtitle is Life in the Village Hardware Shop. So let me read you the blurb. In 2018, Tom Fort's daughter-in-law took over a century-old hardware shop. The family dreamed of developing the shop into one that would become the centre of village life. That much did come true, but not in the way they had expected. Interweaving the evolution of the shop, its previous owners, the customers it serves and the items it sells, rivets, trivets and galvanised buckets, offers a delightful study of community and shines a light on the eccentricities of ordinary people. Alongside, it presents a fascinating history of technological development, from who thought of screwdrivers to where the spirit level came from, who devised the process of galvanisation, and what genius worked out that a suction pad on the end of a piece of wood would unblock sinks. And to read us the first few sentences, here's Tom now. Prologue. The shop stands back from the road, as if reluctant to advertise itself too obviously. It doesn't have to. Almost everyone in the village knows Heath and Watkins, and what its business is. In front is the forecourt, an expanse of tarmac where customers park their cars with varying degrees of care and consideration for others. The surface has been patched and repaired many times, but as soon as one hole is filled, it seems that another appears. When there has been a lot of rain, there are puddles great and small to be avoided. People grumble, but it does not deter them from coming. I really enjoyed this book. I thought it was so different. I thought, yeah, it's good to have some non-fiction books sometimes. This is a book that I think I'd probably give to my dad. I think he'd love it. My father loves the spirit level. You can't go wrong with a spirit level. And so, yeah, there's, it's, there's the beating heart of the shop which I really enjoyed the stories about, and then the history side of things. So there's a bit for everybody, really. But let's talk to Tom now. Well, it is my huge pleasure to welcome Tom Fort to the podcast today. When I heard the title of this book, Tom, I just, I had to read it. It's called Rivets, Trivets and Galvanised Buckets. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. And I'm glad you like the title because I had a big battle getting oh. anyone to accept it and various people sort of gave me quizzical looks but uh, yeah I was convinced it was a great title which came to me on a bicycle ride like all my best ideas do so I'm pleased I'm pleased with the title I don't know about the book <laughs> well what title did they want to use what was suggested oh somebody said call it the hardware shop as in echo of the repair shop on the telly yeah and i thought i said that's so boring and predictable and no one's going to kind of take notice of that and anyway i just like the ring of rivets and trivets i mean they got that in because it does say life in the village hardware shop so they they did they did and originally they wanted to subtitle it village life in the hardware shop and i said that makes absolutely no sense at all so put the village somewhere else (laughs) you've been quite forthright tom with this book well, uh, I've, I've done quite a few books in my time and I've had quite a few publishers in my time. And when I was much younger, I just used to be very submissive and I've got slightly more assertive but as I've got older. And some, some publishers know what they're talking about and some people in publishing have no idea what they're talking about. You've got to try and work out which is which. But of course, you're very happy with your publishers, let's just add. 
Of course, I'm very happy with any publisher who's prepared to commission a book. <laughs> okay, let, let's start with the basics. Can you summarise this book for us? I just need to provide a tiny bit of sort of historical context. Four and a half years ago, we, as in myself, my daughter-in-law, Sharona, Shro, we called her, we took over with my wife, Helen's help, the hardware shop in our village, which was going to close otherwise. And so the book is partly an account of how we came to take it over and the people who use the shop and, and so forth. And it's partly a social history of DIY and home improvements from really from the kind of middle of the 19th century, very much a joint US-British adventure in that both sides of the Atlantic fed off each other. So it's about DIY and home improvement and how the passion for that people have for making their homes look nicer developed. And then it's also a series of kind of tiny histories of some of the objects in the in the shop. This was my agent's idea, and it was a brilliant idea because people go to hardware shops and say, can I have some 3-in-1 oil or WD-40 or such like? And I thought, well, where did these things come from? Who invented them? And so there were a whole series of little South Cutter stories. So I've woven all of those three elements into one kind of seamless, I hope, seamless narrative. Oh, fantastic. And why now? Did you have to wait until you'd got enough stories collected from the first few years of running the shop? Well, when we took over the shop, so uh, I knew immediately that this was a kind of an unusual thing to happen. It was a good story. I was a journalist for many, many years at, on local newspapers and the BBC, so I, could, I knew what a story was. And I knew this was a good story, but because I live in the village, I couldn't really see a way to do the story without causing massive offence to all my neighbours and then that then being driven out of the village to go and live somewhere else, which I was very reluctant to do. And then my agent had the clever idea to say, well, don't worry about so much about the people using it. Uh, you write about the shop and what's in the shop. That was an enormous help. And then eventually I worked out a way to introduce and report on people from the village but only when they come into the shop so they're not identified in any way at all and what it's just what they say in the shop and whether the things that appeal to me and uh, uh, because I wasn't allowed to work in the shop because I'm too old and stupid and wouldn't be able to work the till and I can't stand up for hours so I relied upon Shro, my daughter-in-law, Helen, my wife who works there for a couple of days a week and our daughter Rosie, who's 21, has no interest in hardware at all, but a great interest in earning money. So she does shifts in there when she's back from university. And I just asked them to kind of listen out for quirky and absurd encounters and tell me about them. And it, yeah, it did take a bit of time, uh, but it took really the thing was working out a way to do it. And yeah, that, that was what also writing books takes a bloody long time anyway. And it's extremely tiring in case anybody out there thinks it's easy. <laughs> well, I was interested how hard it was to write this book because there's, when you're dealing with fact rather than fiction, there's that balance between accurately recording everything and, you know, getting the story told as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a clear idea of, of how long roughly the book is going to be and you have to have a very clear idea of structure. I, you know, I've never written a... I have tried to write novels, but they were absolutely terrible, so uh, I've no idea about writing fiction. But 
I've written quite a few non-fiction books, uh, and you need to have a very clear notion of what the structure is going to be right to the end before you start, in my view. Uh, you, you adapt it as you go on, you make changes and so forth, and sometimes you make major surgery if it's not worked out. But this one, getting the facts is fun, so I spent time in libraries and so forth, uh, dredging up fascinating facts about mouse traps and rat poison and such. <laughs> they must have been very worried about you in the library. <laughs> well, I was very discreet about it. Um, and mouse traps are so fascinating. Yeah, and I sort of bought a few of the books I uh, I needed. But of course, the writing, I always write in the winter because it's cold and dark and there's nothing better to do. So I finished it in what seems ages ago now, and it takes you know it takes a whole year for the whole production process. To, and then we now arrive at the absolutely horrendously terrifying, horrible moment when it's unleashed on the public and nobody pays any attention at all. <laughs> Hopefully they will pay attention to this book. Hopefully John. they will. God, I I lie in bed at night thinking, hopefully they will. The words come to me. Writing them, I mean, you've got all these memories that are in the book, and I'm just interested if you had to select one as your favourite part of the book, the favourite memory, what would it be? The event in the book. Well, I mean, I've had a lot of fun. I go down, the shop is so geographically close to me, as in it's 100 yards away, and when my wife's working in there, I go down, uh, I take her a lunch on, so that's Mondays and Wednesdays, <laughs> if you happen to be around. And of, of the encounters in the shop, there was... A, there were a couple, really. One was that, that Helen, my wife, told me about was this woman who came in, and I'm not going to tell the whole story, but she had a full-sized fiberglass cow in her garden as a garden and all ornament, and the horn had fallen off, and so she wanted to replace the horn on her giant cow, uh, and there was a very long consultation, and they worked out a way to do it. And I happened to turn up and I said to the uh, to the woman in question, that looks like a really tricky job. And she said, oh, no, it's all right. I'll be able to do it. I, I was a dentist. so. I... <laughs> and then the other one was the story right at the end about which my daughter Rosie gave me, the guy who comes in, he, he comes in with his parrot, Humphrey. And again, I don't want to spoil the story because it's the last thing in the book. But Humphrey, who's a parrot of few words, says one thing which still strikes me as being incredibly funny, but I won't spoil it by telling you it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> and you narrated the audiobook version of this. How was that for you? Well, it was extremely, uh, it was extremely hard work, and they, they said they wanted an actor to do it, and I just said, because I've always wondered what it's like, and, you know, it's sort of, I don't, would like the idea. I used to do quite a lot of broadcasting. So I just said, could I have a go? And, to my, and they didn't even voice test me they just suddenly sent me to kind of go to a studio in king's cross and do it so i didn't even know how it was done and then i thought i can't read my the book because it'll make an awful noise of fluttering of pages and then they they gave me this very interesting device called an ipad which <laughs> was propped up in front of me and which i and then i thought actually this is very because i've never had an ipad uh so i thought this is very interesting and you could just twiddle it up with your unfortunately every now and then you give it too energetic a flick with your thumb and you uh, lose your place. The only bad downside is if you read every single word, you suddenly you notice things that aren't quite right or that you haven't said quite what you meant, and that is very painful. 
uh, and it's particularly painful because at this stage you can't do anything about it. So I'm not going to tell you what they were because you won't read it care. Luckily, you won't read it carefully enough to notice. But I noticed, and so you, uh, you say, "Oh, bloody hell!" and then stop. <laughs> um, you say it wasn't fun; it was hard work. Are you able to alter the book at all when you're doing the narration, or do you have to religiously stick to every word? No, I, well, that's a very good question. I did a couple of times. I uh, sort of improved it by mistake, and then the guy on the thing said, you, you haven't said exactly. They were minute things. Uh, and I said, oh, let it go. You know, it's, it's actually a, it's a little bit better. But no, generally, you have to stick disturbing and of course you get rather bored with you think well this book it seemed so clever when i first did it and now i'm <laughs> sick of it i think that's quite a common thing with writers though that they get you know they get over and then years later when somebody says that you're the bloke who wrote whatever it was and i really liked and they tell you about something that was in your book that you've completely forgotten about <laughs> so you're not looking to sign up as a professional audiobook narrator then no, no, I'm not. I mean, I do know a woman who does it. She could do lots of accents. The thing is, I was able to do my book because it's my voice. You know, a lot of books you've got to put on accents. And there are passages which are come from American books. And I thought, actually, if I was an actor, I would put on an American accent. But I'm not an actor. And the results would be absolutely horrendous if I tried to do it. And therefore, I just stuck with this voice that you're hearing now pretty much throughout. But this woman I know, she does every act. She's a, but she's an actress, so she can do, she told me, she can do Canadian, which is really very impressive. I don't know what, if I tried to do a Canadian accent. So no, I'm not, is the answer to your, short answer to your question. Would you want to narrate another book, though, of yours? Unfortunately, all my books are, are now sort of, as it were, out of print. There are one or two that I really love doing that I would wished I'd done. Yeah, I, they were they were all done by kind of professional actors and very in a very accomplished way um if i ever write another book i shall maybe suggest it you know was it emotional to write this book it's i don't like writing about myself uh, and i've always been careful to do books that didn't really involve me uh too much the one or two i appeared in as a kind of observer this one was sort of closer to home was it emotional in a way, I suppose it was, but I had, you know, I just felt I had to be careful about writing about, you know, members of my family and people that I know. But when I think about kind of where I live and what the place that the shop has in the village where I live and such like, yeah, I feel a, I feel a emotion of kind of real pleasure and pride that we kept the shop going. Forget about the book. The, the shop is a kind of vital part of the life of this place, um, and I'm. I'm very proud, really, that I had the imagination, very unusually, to sort of see something that was never going to happen again in my life and my daughter-in-law's life. And, it, and instead of being scared of it, kind of embrace it, which was very... I'm a very cautious person and never spent my life avoiding taking any risks of any kind. And this was quite a big risk, and it paid off, which is terrific. Will you be selling copies in the shop? Definitely. In fact, I think we'll probably say you can't have a light bulb unless you buy a copy of this very expensive book. Yeah, I think so. They've never sold a book in the in the shop, and it'll be quite unusual. But you know, I think one's got to have a little little pile of signed books. 
uh, so that when you come in to say, can I have some rat poison? Shreya or Helen can say, oh, of course, yeah, we've got rat poison. And we've got this really interesting book as well, which might be run up your street. So when you go and take lunch to your wife, are you there with a notepad and pen and looking for new ideas and things? No, because I knew that it, I, it worked. The, the, the strategy of asking them to come back at the end of the day and say, Did they, which was just sort of thought up on the hoof, worked really well because... If I'd been there, I would have been in the way. I would have been there and people would have noticed. What What's, I think, good about the, the interactions that are reported in the book is that actually they are very characteristic of the kind of thing you actually hear in in, a, in our shop, but I think also in, in a lot of good shops. And if I'd been sitting there on a stool in my notebook, no one would have said anything at all. So I was sort of, it was quite a clever idea, actually. And especially now with the book being published. When you first receive a new book, you have very, I have very kind of conflicted emotions. But it looks lovely. It's got a very, very charming cover. It's got some rather sweet pictures inside. I, years ago, I wrote a book about the A303, going down the A303, and I was giving a talk about it. And a bloke in the audience said, well, yeah, but you missed out all this. He said, when are you going to write volume two? And I said, I'm not going to write volume two. And I said, but if anyone is, I think you'd be a really good choice. And everyone started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, I love the cover as well. And the, the picture on, was it done by someone local? No, it was somebody found by the publisher. And we just sent some photographs. And the first version had all the wrong things that we don't sell in the shop outside. So I had to say, look, this isn't this is no good at all. And what came back the next time round was... That's exactly, if you ever come this way, pop in, that's exactly how it looks. It's wonderful. I expect tea towels and coasters to be made of the design. Yeah, yeah, yes. And the, and the film, of course, still to come. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know who who will play. Well, actually, no, they can't play me because I'm not really uh, in it. But there was, you could get somebody famous to play Greg, who, is, who mends the mowers at the side of the shop, <laughs> who's a very charismatic individual. Oh, no, you should have someone play you. Who would you have play you, Tom? Well, actually, it's a, a friend of mine who makes films, who used to make films for the BBC. I made a couple of films for the BBC long ago, uh, and he said this would make a lovely kind of BBC Four in the days when the BBC still Four was still commissioning films, which I don't think they do anymore. Uh, it would make... And I said, yeah, but I just... I can't do it because I would be in it and talking to people in this village where I live and it would all be too embarrassing. So I think it just stays on the pages of the book. <laughs> you've written quite a few books, as you've mentioned, and we've loved this one. So if we love this book, A Tom Fort, which book should we go to <laughs> next of yours? All right, I'll tell you about two of them. So the second book I wrote, I was paid quite a lot of money for it. It was a very long time ago uh, and it was a complete commercial failure they hardly sold a single copy of it and it's called the book of eels so it's about eels freshwater eels and their weird and wonderful lives and migrations and i had a fantastic amount of fun doing it i went all over the eel world uh, and i wrote uh, what i think is a terrific book and actually the very few people who did buy it even now, they say, you know, you're the bloke who wrote the Book of Eels. I love that book. And it's not easy to get hold of now. And then the only really, really successful, commercially commercially successful book was the A303 Highway to the Sun, which is the only book I've ever written which is actually sold in quite considerable numbers. 
and also was a film on the TV, and I'm fond of it. Not so much for the book because it was, yeah, I had fun doing it, but because it was successful. I know it's very, if you're not very successful as a writer, I think you're bound to have very fond thoughts about <laughs> oh, one or two successes. So if Rivets and Trivets is successful, I will love it very passionately indeed. <laughs> well, quite an eclectic range of books then, a book about eels and the A303. I mean, what, what's next, Tom? Well, it's no, I've, that's an absolute deadly secret. As I'm, I'm now seven, I'm almost seventy-two, uh, and writing books becomes harder. You know, just kind of, and having the stuff in your head that you need, and being able to mentally put your finger on it and such like becomes uh, becomes harder. Uh, and I've, I've sort of not run out of subjects. I mean, there is a there is an idea knocking around which I can't tell you about, which might might come to something. Uh, the last book I did, which was a very important book to me, which was I spent my life fishing. Angling is my sort of passion, and yeah, serving on worthy bodies to try and keep our rivers clean and such like. And I wrote a book called Casting Shadows, which was about our us as a people, our relationship with our freshwater fish, salmon, eels, blah blah blah. And it came out about a week after the start of lockdown, and as a result of which, it was a really it wasn't a total flop but it was a it was a very difficult time it was really depressing and because all the bookshops were shut i'm the kind of writer who needs book people to see my book in bookshops and um that was really really hard to deal with and i thought after that i'm not i'm not i can't go through all this again because it's so painful and then this came up uh and and you know, it, it, the trouble is it's slightly addictive writing books, so uh, and maybe I'll do it again. We hope you do. Well, we come to the final question, which is a crucial one for this podcast, Tom, so be ready for this. Am I going to be able to answer it in a sensible way? The question is, what biscuit powered the writing of this book? What is your biscuit of choice? I don't eat biscuits. Oh, I used Tom. to eat loads of biscuits. I thought we were friends. No, I thought we were friends. No, but cake. Oh, is that, okay. Is that works? Will that do instead of biscuits? Actually, I'm very happy to allow. What what type of cake? Well, my though? wife, as well as working in the shop uh, and being a professional gardener, is a phenomenally accomplished maker of traditional fruit cake, lemon drizzle, date with with black treacle, um, and various others. And they're they're too good. Do you see what I mean? <laughs> I say, no, we mustn't have any more cakes. It's too good. Uh, and I've got one slice of her latest fruit cake wait, wait, waiting for, my, for me to have for lunch for de- today. And then I'm going to say, look, no more cake for a little while. So no biscuits, lots of cake. Well, that's fair enough. We'll accept that. It's just been a pleasure to talk to you. Tom Fort, whose latest book is Rivets, Trivets and Galvanised Buckets. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Coming up, more book reviews and another author interview. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Next book is The Maiden by Kate Foster. When I read about this book, I thought, oh, this sounds good. Here is the blurb. Edinburgh, October 1679. Lady Christian Nimmo has been charged with the murder of her lover, James Forrester. The news of her arrest and scandalous trial splashed across the broadsides with headlines that leave little room for doubt. Adulteress, whore, murderess. Yet only a year before, Lady Christian was a picture of respectability. So why would she risk losing everything? And was she really capable of murder? For Lady Christian was not the only woman in Forrester's life and certainly not the only one with cause to wish him dead. Let's go to hear Kate read the first few, well, first few sentences. She reads quite a bit. So sit down, get a cup of coffee and listen now. Chapter one. Christian. The Tolbooth Jail, Edinburgh, October 1679. You are sentenced to beheading. God have mercy on your soul. Prepare yourself in prayer. The sheriff's words clang, pious as the bells of St. Giles's, all the way from the court back into the jail. Six high constables haul me across the square. Batten's braced, just in case. I'm dangerous, the broadsides say. Their other hands grab for all the parts of me they can reach. Fingers and thumbs claw at buttons and bows. Their faces leer too close and blur into a mess of roar and gawp. All I have left to fight back with are my feet, picking everything away that comes too close. I'm at the centre of the commotion, yet one step removed hit by everything in flashes. The sour stench of a vegetable peddler, the red plume of a hat, the thought of the slam of a blade. They'd said the judge might believe me. 
Wear your white lace gown. Fall to your knees and plead your innocence. Now the dress hangs from me, dragging in the dirt until I'm back inside, a thunderclap of bolts sealing the door. I should have searched for Joanna in the crowd. I should have taken one last look at the sky. Very good. I love hearing it read by the author. I know I keep saying that, but that's because it's still true. I much prefer it. I thought this was a really interesting book. I love the stories. It's well, the stories, the story. It just drew me in. I thought I thought it was a really, really good book. Superb, actually. One that I'm going to remember for a while. Enjoyed the sort of you kept wanting to find out more. And let's talk to Kate now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome today Kate Foster, whose fabulous book is The Maiden. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This book, this incredible book. Let's start with the first obvious basic question, but we have to do it. Can you summarise this book for us? The Maiden is a historical novel which tells the story of Christian Nibble, who is sentenced to death for murdering her lover, Lord James Forrester. And it's based on a true story of a murder that happened in the village that I grew up in, in Kerstorfen, in, in 1679. And because this story really happened, and in your village, was it something that was talked about a lot as you were growing up? It's part of the folklore of Kerstorfen. So Kerstorfen is, is now a suburb of Edinburgh. And if you ever visit, if in, if you ever come to Edinburgh um, and fly up to Edinburgh Airport, you will probably go through Christorfen on your way into the city. And in its day, in, in the 17th century, it would have been very much an isolated village in its own right. The murder of Lord Forrester was massive because the Forrester family lent their name to quite a lot of areas of, of, of Christorfen. And I, the school that I went to was Forrester High School. Um, so the murder of one of its people was huge and Christian Nimmo's ghost is said to haunt the spot of the murder. And as a child growing up in Christorfen, I was terrified that she was going to come and get me. <laughs> but this is a fictional book, we should say as well. Yes, it's based on this story, but you have written it as fiction. Yes. Yeah, so I'm a journalist by profession. So some of that plays into just to kind of my, I suppose, my interest and, and, and my research. I've completely made it up because this because the facts of the case are quite scant so I really have invented a, a whole new cast of characters and also made it into a murder mystery because despite what may have happened in the past I really wanted to do, sort of put my own mark upon it. And in writing the book did it change your view on the historical side of what had happened? I find the biggest thing that, that kind of made me think really hard about what had happened was when I was doing my, my research into the kind of just what it was like to be alive in 1679, which was really difficult for men and women and the kind of hardships that they faced and, and particularly for, you know, for women who were so constrained at that time. So that, I mean, that, that made me think really hard about the way that people would have behaved. I mean, executions and murders were, were, were just... And some authors say, well, I wanted to address certain themes in my book. And I didn't know with you if that was what you were setting out to it or if it was just there's this story. And as a result of telling the story, yes, there are these themes that come out, but that's not the sort of the primary goal. The primary goal is telling this tale. My interest was was really about giving Christian Imo a voice 
because all we really know of Christian Nemo now is, is that she's a, a, a terrifying ghost. The, the way that she was described in some of the court reports, which were not quite written at the time, but may have even been written about a about hundred years later, books that are sort of, you know, the scandalous murders of Edinburgh town, you know, that's that sort of thing. She was described um, in, in really, really horrible terms. She was described as a whore, um, you know, she was a murderess. So I was very keen to give her voice, uh, which made her into a, a more understandable human in the kind of understanding that, that we have now about, about how, how relationships can go wrong and, and how people can become violent towards each other. And was she fully formed in your mind before you started writing the book or as you were writing, did she sort of take over and breathe more life into her own character? I really I really struggled with her character. So the book's narrated by, by two women. One of them is Christian and the other one is a, a woman called Violet Blythe, who's, a, who's Lord James Forrester's other lover. And she's a prostitute who comes from the, the old Edinburgh um, closest. So Violet was a really easy character and she came to me straight away. She's a working class uh, woman who's who's very ambitious. And I found her quite easy to write. And I have to say it wasn't until I was kind of on the final kind of edits of The Maiden that I really understood who Christian was. Because it was trying to understand the fact that she, in real life, had actually committed this murder. She didn't deny it in in, in at her trial. But, but but also trying to make her sympathetic. That, that, I find that really challenging. Did any of the characters stay with you after you'd finished that final edit or were you able to close them as you closed the book? Yeah, no, they're all, I think I feel, I feel them all at the moment just because obviously we're doing lots of work around the book launch and I'm talking about them. I mean, sometimes I just want to kind of put them in the box and shut and shut the lid. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes I feel them particularly Christian because... Because she's a real, you know, she's a real person, and I and I, I, I was doing a couple of kind of local book talks, and I and I met people who were very familiar with her ghost, and so she she does feel very real, yeah. So, are you looking for more stories like that for future books? Are you going through history? Yeah. So I'm I'm writing my my second book just now, which which is like another historical. I suppose you could use the word thriller. It's a little bit further back in time, actually. And it's a similar theme, so it's it's just about the stories of women who were perhaps we just don't really hear from. I mean, this book is absolutely tremendous. And looking at some of the reviews, obviously other websites are available, but Amazon have this as a 4.8. That is incredibly high. And Goodreads was incredibly high. I mean, everybody is loving this story are you getting a great reaction as you talk to people about it well i mean i don't know because it's my first novel so i don't know what it's like when you launch a novel what's what's normal obviously i've i mean i've obviously read all of the reviews like addicted to reading until <laughs> one day i'll just stop but I, I'm, I'm i'm really what what i find interesting is how readers can pick up different elements of a story that they find the most interesting some people love characters some people love, you know, guessing their way through the plot and some people love the sense of place. And and so that's really interesting as a writer because you can think, well, what are the important things to put, you know, to put in a novel? And you mentioned that you're a journalist. Does that mean, therefore, that you can write anywhere or do you have a particular place you need to write your book? Well, when I'm writing, so journalism does take you everywhere, although not so much now because I, I do a lot of work from home, but I can write anywhere. I, I can't work part of the Queen's funeral which which took place when her um, body came to Edinburgh 
So I, I, I was covering a bit of that and I, and I had to file copy very quickly and I sort of think I just stood in the high street and just kind of did it there. So I mean, could write, and that was cut. I mean, that, and that was interviewing people in, in colour piece. So it was in the middle of the throng. I had to kind of just get some words over that were meaningful. So I can do that, but 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 I really prefer. Um, I, I noticed that when I'm writing for work, I'm kind of sitting at the desk, and I'm you know, and I'm and I'm quite work work modey. But I do think that when I'm writing creatively, I tend to kind of be a bit more casual and be on the sofa. Probably not very good for my posture, but I tend to be more like almost like I'm kind of reading a book. Oh, that's interesting. And presumably for your journalism, you can't plot and plan what you're going to do. You just get into it. You don't have the time necessarily to plot it. Whereas when you were writing the book, did you change that approach? Yeah, they're just such completely different disciplines that I can't even really compare them. So journalism just is very quick, you know, very quick. Even with a substantial story, you still have to deliver it pretty quickly. I mean, one to two to three days is really what your turnover would be, sometimes a couple of hours, which is why I wanted to write a novel because I wanted to kind of play around with this huge space and see how I could fill it. And, it, and I didn't find it daunting at all. I, I did find the only thing that, that I did find when I was doing some early, early writing was that I was really stopping after 500 words, which, which is about this, the length of a news article. So obviously that had trained into me that when you've done 500 words, you're done. <laughs> that was really, really short. So that had to get, that had to get trained. I mean, that just had to stop. And how did you take to the editing process? Because again, yes, you have an editor when you're a journalist, but it's quite different to the editing that goes on when you're writing a novel. Yes. I mean, it's not dissimilar. I edit, I mean, I, I do editing in my job as well. So I edit other people. So I kind of know what the role entails. Uh, I, I think I'm quite easy to work with as a writer because I understand that everybody needs a good editor. Oh, that's interesting then. So you took your editing comments kindly and didn't need 24 hours to calm down. No, I mean, no, I, I didn't react bad. I've not reacted badly to any of them. But, um, you know, sometimes you can see that what's going to happen is you're going to have to do a lot of work. And that's a bit of a, all right, okay. But that's, you know, that's okay. I, I didn't get upset. And if and if somebody suggested something and I and I didn't I didn't quite understand how how it would work I just didn't do it. Fair enough. Did you change much of the story then as you were writing it and editing it? Not really. Um, I had a couple of options on the table. I mean, I, I could follow faithfully with 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 what happened in real life, or I could kind of put my own slant on it. I kind of knew roughly where I was going with that, and I knew the kind of characters. I suppose the changes that I made were, were really kind of a couple of plot twists, characters doing more than what than what I'd initially thought they might be doing. Overall, I, I would say that it was roughly about, you know, the finished product is roughly about what I thought it might have come out like, which I think is quite unusual, actually, because a lot of writers, things can change substantially. In fact, my second one was changing a lot. So, so I know that that was more of an unusual kind of um, experience. And you wrote this on a Curtis Brown creative online course, I believe. Is that right? I wrote some of it on the course, but the course lasts for six months. You know, you don't you don't really write a lot in six months because there's so much feedback that, that goes on. Yeah, I was in a group. Um, we were, just as we went into lockdown, that, that was when I started my, my course. And it was about, I think it was about 10 of us on the course and we were all kind of writing, writing away. So probably got the first three chapters down on, on that course. And just I wrote the rest of it, about half of it, I think, before I actually um, started thinking about submission. Do you think doing that course really helped you 
start the process or do you think you'd have got there anyway? I think creative writing courses are really good because they can, commercial ones, because what they do is they make you focus on the things that are important in publishing industry and, and, and it is an industry. So what's really important is the pitch and where the book will sit on the markets and um, hooking the reader. So these are, you know, if, if you want your book to, you know, to be able to sit in a bookshop alongside other other hardback books at twelve ninety nine, it's got to do all of these things brilliantly. And what I think you know, commercial creative writing courses do is they as they get to the heart of that with with you as the writer. And are you able to switch hats now from your journalism writing, which you still have to do, and then your book writing? Yeah, I do. Um, I can do that and I and I have to do that because there'll be some days where I'm writing and editing and and then I have to work so it has to has to all fit in I mean I can't I sort of I wouldn't I probably wouldn't do novel writing in my lunch hour you know I'd probably just sort of stop short of that because it's too much of a of a of a change but I would certainly do do both in the same way and in fact lots of writers um, have to don't they you just mentioned the struggle to do more than 500 words for the book initially I wondered then if the next time you get asked to write an article, you produce 100,000 words for We're getting up with a quill and parchment one time. So what did you do on publication day? Talk me through it. From one minute past midnight to one minute to midnight, what happened? I, first of all, I kept waking up. And like, you know, when it's Christmas and you wake up and you go, oh, my goodness. So I kept waking up. <laughs> And, and, and thinking I'm a published author and then just falling back asleep again so that happened about three times um, which was really funny because I wasn't planning on doing that um, I got up and then of course the kids what were the kids doing I've got two teenagers I can't remember what they were doing but they were doing something I think I had to do pack lunches and, well, and I think my son had an exam because he's sitting in his exam so it was all about so that was all going on and then Pam McMillan her my publisher he sent me on a book shop tour with wonderful sales rep for Scotland and she whirled me around all the fantastic independent bookshops in Edinburgh of which there are millions and I think everybody should visit all of them and they're, and they're just they're brilliant so we did some of that and then we went up to Waterstones and Princess Street which had a, has a big display of the maiden in it and then I had a book launch which I, I wasn't going to do because I because I'm not very kind of I'm just not that sort of book launchy person but um, someone's you know, well, my agent said, I think, I think you should do it. I think, I think you should really mark the occasion. So we did a lovely book lunch at the Edinburgh Bookshop uh, with friends and family and had some uh, wine. And it was just wonderful to see all my friends together and my family together. And it was just a really, really big celebration. So and, and my editor, she came up from London and, and gave a, a, a speech. And it was just the most magical day that anybody could have hoped for. It, it, it was really just unexpectedly lovely yeah oh that's wonderful is there anything that's really surprised you about publishing a book that you weren't aware of it's really hard work and people say that i'm non-stop i am literally at the moment non-stop between my kids and my work and my book and like the different aspects of the book and social media i don't have a spare minute and i've got this pile of things that need to go to the recycling center that are in the hallway and they, I mean, they've been sitting there for ages and I'm just looking at this pile and I'm just embarrassed by it, basically. And the final question is a very important one. What biscuit was powering the writing of The Maiden? What was your biscuit of choice? Well, I don't know about, I'm probably a variety if I'm being honest, but um, my, my biscuit of choice 
Um, and I don't know if it's a biscuit, so I don't know if I'm being controversial here. Mm. It's, it's a Tunnock's tea cake, which I don't know if anybody's ever suggested. <laughs> no, you are the first. Well, I just see that I know it's I know it's got the word cake in it, but actually I think I in the biscuit section, and it's a kind yeah. of cake hybrid uh, of um, biscuity thing and marshmallowy thing, and I think that they are just the best things ever to power anything. Brilliant. No, I'm quite happy for that to be confirmed as a biscuit for the purpose of this podcast. So yes, we will grant you that. Tonnet's tea cakes powering the writing of this brilliant book fantastic well it's just been brilliant to talk to you Kate and find out more about the background of the book and how painful it was or not writing it and and how you've just been getting on since it's been published and we just wish you the best of luck with this absolutely tremendous book so Kate Foster whose wonderful book is called The Maiden thank you so much thank you well very good. Now, I need to tell you about the audiobook that I listened to, The Stranger You Know by Jane Casey. You may recall that I've been reading a few different Jane Casey books. I'd read The Close quite recently, and I decided to go back and start at number one of the crime series. And I had listened to The Burning, I think it was called, and I, I didn't get on with it so well. I didn't tag Jane in any of the media about it, the social media stuff about it. But still, she had listened to my review and I felt really bad about it. But Jane was so good and understanding and said that, you know, she could understand why I had reviewed it in the way that I had. And she said the, the one to really start reading at is actually number four in the series called The Stranger You Know. And I thought, well, if she, my goodness, if she's willing to say that, which I think is amazing, I should be willing to read that book or listen to it. And I did listen to it and I absolutely loved it. It had all the components that I was looking for. Let me read you the blurb first before I say any more. He meets women. He gains their trust. He kills them. That's all Maeve Kerrigan knows about the man she is hunting. Three women have been strangled in their homes by the same sadistic killer. With no sign of a break-in, every indication shows that they let him in. But the evidence is pointing at a shocking suspect, D.I. Josh Derwent, Maeve's colleague. Maeve refuses to believe he could be involved. But how well does she really know him? Because this isn't the first time Derwent's been accused of murder. And let's do the first few sentences. I'd seen enough dead bodies to know they can look peaceful, calm even, at rest. Princess Gordon was not that sort of corpse. It wasn't her fault. Anyone would have struggled to look serene when they had been battered to death, then shoved into the boot of a Nissan Micra and left to stiffen into full rigor mortis. As I say, I loved this book and I want to read or listen to book three as soon as possible. I was convinced I knew who'd done it and let me tell you how wrong I was. <laughs> so that was, I was just like, well, it's obviously this person. No, Philippa, it absolutely wasn't. And you got that wrong, which just adds to it. I thought the pace was brilliant. I wanted to keep listening and what, what, to find out what happened you care about these characters it's got the pace the tension yes they talk about murders and bodies but it i didn't think it was 
you know, that awful, that uncomfortable a listen, it was more, well, I suppose there were times, no, I just thought it was great. Absolutely 10 out of 10. First rate. Really pleased uh, to have listened to that audio book and onwards and upwards. Well, no, not onwards and upwards, just onwards. You can't be any more upwards after that. Very, very good. So let's move on to Happy Head by Josh Silver. How did I come across this book? I think it was on NetGalley and I got it in advance of it being published and read it on the old Kindle. So if I liked it on the Kindle, we know it's all going to be okay. This is a YA book and yeah, it's got quite a powerful tale to tell. Let me read you the blurb of it first of all. When Seb is offered a place on a radical retreat designed to solve the national crisis of teenage unhappiness, he is determined to change how people see him and make his parents proud. But as he finds himself drawn to the enigmatic Finn, Seb starts to question the true nature of the challenges they must undergo. The deeper into the programme the boys get, the more disturbing the assessments become. Until it's clear, there may be no escape. <laughs> Right, I'm going to read you the first few sentences, which is it's actually a, a letter that is at the beginning of the book. Private and confidential, happy head, commitment, growth, gratitude for the attention of Sebastian Seaton. Congratulations. We're writing to inform you that you have been selected to participate in the Happy Head Project as part of its inaugural intake. Based on the research of Dr Eileen Stone and guided by world-leading professors, the Happy Head Project is the first of its kind. This cutting-edge programme will offer participants the opportunity to find enduring happiness. Completion of the programme will unleash your full potential, equipping you with the tools you need for future success. You'll be required to undertake a 13-day course of assessments, therapy and closely monitored non-medical intervention. For the purposes of complete immersion, there will be no contact with family members or friends for the full 13 days. Access to devices and the internet will be prohibited until departure. We ask you to bring the following items. Trainers, no laces. Current necessary medication. One personal item of your choice that does not identify you but is meaningful to you. Place this item in the lockable box provided. The programme will begin on the 1st of September and you will be granted leave from school or college to attend. Arrive no later than 8pm. In close, please find a questionnaire, options for transportation to the facility, a pamphlet with further information and a consent form for your parent guardian. Please fill out the questionnaire with complete honesty. We look forward to welcoming you to Happy Head. Attendance is mandatory. Yours in faith, Professor Manning. Gosh, so what did I think about it? I really, really enjoyed it. It's a YA book, but it covers so many important themes. I thought it was really good. I am getting into my dystopian books more and more, aren't I? So expect to see more of those. But yes, first of a series, bravo, bravo. But I tell you what, not dystopian is my last book. Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret, Judy Bloom. Now, this book was originally published in 1970. And... I remember I wasn't allowed a copy of this book and then I went to stay at my cousin's and my cousin had a copy of this book and I was just like, oh my goodness, there's a book about periods that I can actually read and I read it and I loved it. So I was very interested to read this book. It was probably 40 years ago I read it, I think something like that, maybe a bit less. Anyway, 
I was very interested to read it again and to see what I thought after a substantial period of time. It's a short book. It's 150 pages and it's being made into a film as well that's coming out very soon, if not already out. So anyway, here's the blurb. Margaret Simon likes long hair, tuna fish, the smell of rain and things that are pink. She's just moved from New York City to the suburbs and is anxious to fit in with her new friends. They swear they'll tell each other everything. First bras, first kisses, first periods, everything. But some things are just too private to talk about, even with your friends and especially when you're the new girl. Lucky for Margaret, she's got someone else to confide in. Someone who always listens. Let's do the blurb on this one. Chapter one. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. We're moving today. I'm so scared, God. I never lived anywhere but here. Suppose I hate my new school. Suppose everybody there hates me. Please help me, God. Don't let New Jersey be too horrible. Thank you. We moved on the Tuesday before Labour Day. I knew what the weather was like the second I got up. I knew because I caught my mother sniffing under her arms. She always does that when it's hot and humid to make sure her deodorant's working. I don't use deodorant yet. I don't think people start to smell bad until they're at least 12. So I've still got a few months to go. <laughs> well, my son certainly stunk before he was age 12. Anyway, we won't get on to stinky children. I loved reading this book again. Yes, it's set at a time and it's a particular situation, but it's that it's the joy of youth. It's the anxiety of youth. It was set in a time when there weren't mobile phones and all of that. So it was I found it very comforting in a way to go back. And yes, she's experiencing some, you know, difficult things. That's I'm not trying to make that into something brighter than it is. But it was very much going back in time for me. And I do just remember going into my cousin's bedroom and my eyes zooming in on this book on her bookshelves and just thinking, wow, she's got that book. I know what I'm going to be doing tonight with my torch turned on reading this book. And she'd got others by Judy Bloom as well. I just thought, wow, that's fantastic. And I would like to watch the film. I think it would be really nice to watch it and see what they've done with it. It's a 150 page book. It's not going to change the world. It is a bit of comfort and escape. It's a quick read, an easy read. And it's yeah, um, I'm glad I read it. So there we are. Those are your books for today. What have we talked about? Well, we've talked about Easter eggs. You won't tell anyone, will you? <gasps> Don't tell my family. <laughs> anyway, so we've read Rivets, Trivets and Galvanised Buckets. And Tom Fort, the author, very kindly came on and talked to us about that book. Then we've read The Maiden and the author of that, Kate Foster, very kindly came on and talked to us as well. Then we also reviewed The Stranger You Know by Jane Casey and we had Happy Head, which is written by Josh Silver and Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. Those are your books. We are done here for this week. I'm going to go and try and rethink my life choices in the Easter egg buying department and I'll be back again next week with more recommendations. Just look after yourselves. And I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books. Said no one. Ever. 
See you again soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.